you're chillin' and uh, you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and the accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is sponsored by Fordata, a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of Fordata. I use their website hosting services. And I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcast listeners, 4Data will provide, wherever you are, website hosting at $12 a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4Data.com.au. 4Data. They fix IT. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a fabulous guest. I'm so excited to have her on here. Welcome, Kanna. Hello, how are you? Really well. Kanna Campbell almost needs no introduction at all. She is founder and director of boutique financial planning firm SAS Financial Services, but she's better known as being the money expert on Channel 9, founder of Sugar Mama TV on YouTube, host of Sugar Mama's Financial Foreplay podcast, and she's author of the best-selling books, The $1,000 Project and Mindful Money. Thank you, Kanna. Thank you for having me. No, no, it's really, truly my honor. You have done so much to improve financial literacy and to get people talking about money. Could you have ever imagined when you started out that you would have made finance so sexy? <laughs> I hope I'm making it fun, fashionable and sexy. I'm so passionate about what I do and I really believe in taking control of your financial future because it's one that it's an area of stress that we have so much more control than what we realize so I'm really proud of what I've done a huge amount of time and care has gone into everything that I've created and there have been huge sacrifices along the way to do what I've done and to build what I've built I am still surprised at how much it's taken off and and how many people I've impacted and helped and I never take that for granted and I'm always so touched deeply when someone approaches me in the street or in a restaurant and says, hey, I had $10,000 worth of credit card debt until I found out about your YouTube channel and now I've got a share portfolio or now I've just bought my first property. Like it's, it's such an honour to hear people's journeys and how I've, I've helped people shift them, their lives around. And I always say to these people, like, it wasn't me that did it. It was you. You did all the hard work. You just took my information and my knowledge and my advice and hopefully my wisdom and, and applied it. You, they did all the hard work. So you know, there's a huge future ahead for Sugar Mama and I'm excited about where it's going. And the great thing is I'm not just helping people in Australia, I'm helping people around the world. Wow, that's just quite amazing. And you share so many amazing stories on your podcast too about such amazing people. Yeah. Which is just, just fabulous. So I know you're best known for your $1,000 project, which is pretty much where it began, I guess. Uh, yes. Well, it all began with obviously the YouTube channel, Sugar Mama TV, but the $1,000 project was something I launched for a couple of different reasons. The first one being I wanted people to start thinking outside of the square when it came to their money. A lot of people would say to me, look, I only earn this much from my job. I can't afford to save up for my first home or do use that as an excuse. I was like, 
that's crap. You work nine to five. You could do stuff in the morning. You could do stuff at nighttime. You could do stuff on the weekend to bring in some extra money. You're not defined by your nine to five salary. The other reason I started the $1,000 project was because I wanted to educate people around investing and building long-term growing passive income streams and learning about shares. And then the third reason I started the $1,000 project was because I wanted people to understand we are all presented with saving opportunities. Mm. You know, whether it be our car insurance, whether it be, you know, someone shouting us lunch or a coffee. <laughs> you know, always, you know we always have these situations where we get to save some money. And the, those savings actually evaporate unless we do something proactively with that money. So say, for example, you and I go to lunch and, and you in your head, you've budgeted $50 for lunch. I shout you lunch. You've technically saved $50. So I would recommend that you transfer that $50 to a separate savings account so it's actually that savings really has counted. And you let that savings build up to a certain point, ideally $1,000, and you do something with it. So with those three goals, I thought, how am I going to do this? And how am I going to show people and, and prove to people this works? And so I decided the best way to do it is to march to the beat of my own drum, to be my own guinea pig. And and that's how the $1,000 project was born. And gosh, at the portfolio, has it does have a marginal loan attached to it of $50,000, but it's worth over $168,000. Wow. And it all started just $1 at a time, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been a journey and, and it's... The, all the passive income goes to World Vision's Thousand Girl Movement, which is helping break barriers with poverty, with child labour, with forced marriages. It's you know it's something I'm really proud of, and I'm and again I'm honoured to be working with World Vision on on this. So that's quite empowering. Not only are you building up your portfolio, and that's quite a significant portfolio that you've built up from all those little things, but you're also Paying it forward to help girls throughout the world. Yep, I have twelve girls that I sponsor, and in Myanmar, um, which was formerly Burma, and I'm dedicated to helping those girls every single year. And obviously, every time the thousand dollar project grows and the passive income grows, that's another girl I can I can sponsor. That's quite phenomenal. It's really important to reflect on how abundant we are and how lucky we are, especially since you keep talking about shouting me lunch. I was feeling the abundance virtually already. <laughs> over this but it is amazing sometimes how we do have these things whether it's you know Christmas money or birthday money and how easily those little things get frittered away if we don't have a plan exactly a place for that savings to land and and to stay quarantined yeah and you were talking earlier about how people often have an excuse that they're only earning so much from their nine to five and that's an excuse not to to earn and I find this fascinating because I guess in my public service career, I was often around people who were very wealthy in terms of their net worth income, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were saving and investing, were they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, nothing is what you think it is, and it all comes down to what you do with it. And look, I have very wealthy clients on very humble salaries and incomes, and I have also very wealthy clients with not much to show for it. So it works both ways. That's why I always say, like, what you look at it on social media is can be very misleading. It also can be very true and honest. You've just got to look at everything with a, a grain of salt. And I get to, as a financial planner, I get to sort of peel back the layers and see exactly what's going on. Mm. I, I'd like to say I'm surprised, but I'm not at all. You know, I, I just, I think I'm numb to seeing everything, every single, all the um, 
skeletons in the closet with lots of different people and lots of good things as well. Yeah, you're right though. You don't really know what, what people's true net worth is. Many, many, many years ago, my ex-husband had a part-time job while he was at uni, basically opening the remittances for a particular credit card company or a particular bank that was receiving these. And it was really fascinating for him because sometimes he would actually see the names of people he knew and he had no idea that they had so much credit card debt. Just because someone's got a new car or they've got a big house doesn't necessarily mean that their net worth is is high. And also it's actually nothing to do with net worth because I might live in a $10 million house. That doesn't necessarily make, make me wealthy. It's It's what is your money doing to work for you? How much passive income do you have? That's what my biggest philosophy is about, building and growing long-term growing passive income streams so that you don't have to work. Your money is working for you and it pays you a salary rather than you having to work for a salary. So since we've sort of been talking about houses and expensive houses, it's been amazing this year, particularly with the government incentives, the amount of young people who are buying houses now. Yeah, it's, it's quite a change, I think, almost from, from last year. Has this really something you've seen with people taking up the $1,000 project to save for a deposit? The $1,000 project has definitely helped a lot of people save up for their first home, but it's also helped people pay off their home loans. I'm surprised with COVID, you know, that people are, the, the property market has, has rallied again. It definitely has caught me by surprise. But there's a lot of smoke and mirrors at the moment, which I think, we yet to see the fallout because obviously a lot of home loans are being put on hold with the mortgage freezes. Um, so I think when they start to expire, which they will be shortly, we'll start to see what's really going on and where that the market is going. But I always say to people, don't worry about what your next door neighbour is doing, your best friend's doing. Just work out your own financial path, your own financial journey and what works best for your value system. It's very wise advice because you don't really know what's happening to your neighbours. Like even if they don't have credit card debt, you don't know if their parents are assisting them with different things or you don't know if they've inherited wealth. You don't know whether their job is stable or not. You just There's so many things that you just don't know about, but all you know about is yourself and where you're going. And that's all you should be putting your energy into yourself. Back to yourself. So with record interest rates right now, this is quite a dilemma for some people, particularly those who are building up a nest egg, who are looking to have emergency funds, looking to save for a deposit. How does that change the investing landscape? Now, I'm conscious that while you are a licensed and accredited financial planner, you're not giving a one-on-one -on -one session with anyone. This is just by general financial literacy. But how does that change the investing landscape? It doesn't really at all. I mean, debt recycling is a very, very powerful strategy to help build wealth. You've got to use it in a very cautious and careful way because it is technically a high growth strategy uh, and one that has risks. But all of those risks, or at least 95% of those risks, are very manageable when you know how to do it correctly. The additional benefit right now is obviously it's very cost effective to borrow money right now with interest rates being low. So not only is it beneficial for new homeowners or homeowners in general taking out a new homeowner or refinancing their home loan, the same discounts and benefits apply to people who are using the equity within their home to invest because you're still able to access those very cost-effective interest rates, which were obviously recently cut again this week. So let's go back and talk about debt recycling and what, what it is. I assume it's not a garbage collection system. It's something quite different. And you've done quite a fair bit of work recently of talking about what it is. So how does debt recycling work? Debt recycling is where you use the equity within your home 
borrow against it to go and invest and buy and build long-term growing passive income streams. Say, for example, my home is worth $1 million and I have a $400,000 home loan. Technically, that means I've got $600,000 equity. Now, I'm going to assume that I've got it on a stable income. I mean, my job is very secure. I've got lots of money sitting in my redraw facility, which represents my, a large amount of emergency money to keep me nice and safe. I'm a high growth investor. And I think to myself, look, I've got my only asset is my home. I don't want to wake up at age 60 and, and realize that, great, I've paid off my home loan, but I've, I don't have anything else other than a little bit of superannuation. And I'm going to be honest with everyone listening right now. Your superannuation is most likely not going to be enough to get you through retirement. With debt recycling, I would go to my bank and say, look, I want to borrow some money to invest. I want to own assets outside of my home so that I can start building and buying long-term growing passive income streams. I would, The bank would look at, obviously, my application, um, go through a range of questions, look at my budgets. I'd have to do my own budgets and look at how I could afford to potentially borrow additional money against mm -hmm. my home and also consider the risk of, you know, if I default on this loan, my home is up for grabs. But also the reality of that is my home's up for grabs if I default on my mortgage anyway. So it's not too dissimilar to what's going on anyway. And I also need to factor in at least a 3% interest rate rise in my budget. This is important. Not three interest rate rises, but a 3% interest rate rise. So that means if in due course they will, and I need to make sure that my budget can still afford my mortgage and this new investment loan that I'm potentially looking at taking out. So I would say to the bank, okay, look, I'd like to borrow $100,000. And what they will do is set up a separate investment loan. It will be in the same internet banking so I can see it and the money will sit there until I'm ready to invest. The moment I draw down that money, and I might say I only invest $20,000 of the $100,000 or $50,000, I don't have to draw the whole $100,000, I go and invest that. And that interest is tax deductible and I can take that money and go and invest it and ideally, you, if you're borrowing to invest, you need to be investing in what I call two-dimensional assets, so growth assets. And typically speaking, growth assets are Australian shares, international shares, and property. So what I would do is, say, for, let's say I do the full $100,000, I buy $100,000 worth of shares, say, through a listed investment company, so it's immediately diversified, reducing my volatility risk and diversification risk. And I can reinvest the dividends if I want or I can have the dividends paid to me to help service the interest. And I just go on with continuing on to pay off my home loan because most banks will set this up on an interest-only basis. If I want, I can throw chip away at the investment loan if I want. But essentially, I'm shifting my non-deductible debt into deductible debt. And it's a really powerful way because you're potentially borrowing money at a lower interest rate. Mm. Now, this is not always going to be the case, especially with, you know, market volatility, dividends being cut, also interest rates rising. It's something that's going to be managed very wisely and carefully. But when you do it over the long run, a 10, 15, 20-year strategy, you wake up 15 years later, you've paid off your home loan, and you now have, for example, a $200,000 or $300,000 share portfolio that's been bubbling away, growing in the background, as well as owning your home outright. And then once you've paid off your home, because you always prioritise non-deductible debt over deductible debt, you can then start paying off that $100,000 loan or continue on investing or whatever you want to do. But then you've got, you know, you wake up with a $300,000 asset or even potentially more, depending on the time and the returns. 
as well as your superannuation. And you're just creating that additional layer of financial security. And wealthy people do this. And I can tell you because I have a lot of wealthy clients. They do this all the time and they do it on a regular basis. So I, I like to sort of recommend always be careful of your overall gearing and because mm. you've got to manage the whole loans in total. But, you know, you would say, okay, for every $50,000 we knock off the home loan, we'll increase our investment loan and invest another 25000 So, yes, technically you're taking one step forward, two steps forward, one step back, but you're shifting your debt into healthy deductible debt and you're buying assets that grow in value, but more importantly, they pay your passive income stream. I can see why some people don't understand it at first and I can also see why it is so effective. And I mentioned this previously, but I had an experience pre-GFC. So I'm trying to think what year it was. I think it was 2007. 2006, 2007. Yeah, around about that time frame. The share market was going gangbusters. It was really, really high. And I actually personally thought even then it was actually probably a little bit too high. And first time that my ex and I went to see a financial planner and let's just say she probably didn't spell out all the risks, but she was strongly in favor of us mortgaging the principal place of residence to the hilt to do what you're talking about, but didn't really think about what would be the risks if say the share market went down or the risks of everything else. And we were actually quite leveraged. So there wasn't a lot of equity to grab anyway. Yeah. And yeah, and so it was, I remember just feeling so scared. I remember thinking, my goodness, she's pushing me into something where I could lose the family home. And I think we sort of ran a mile. Mm. And I'm sharing this not to say that I don't think debt recycling is a good strategy in this low interest rate environment. I think it's, there, there is a lot to be said for it. But there is, I imagine, a lot of fear in terms of will I lose the family home and what does this mean for me? Well, okay, so there's a couple of things here. You wouldn't do this strategy just because interest rates are low. That's the wrong reason. You do this because you're willing to take some educated, informed risk to help build some financial wealth for yourself in a tax-efficient manner but focuses on creating the, the, the goal of financial freedom and independence through long-term growing passive income streams. One of the key things if you're looking at doing this is to understand the risks, but be very, very careful and also understand how to manage those risks carefully. So, for example, you would always check your budget, you know, make sure you can afford this, this strategy in your current budget and if interest rates go up by 3%. So if your financial advisor at the time had done this, you would have probably said, look, this gearing's too, too aggressive. If interest rates go up by 3%, we, this, we can't afford this. The other thing is to look at is obviously emergency money. You would never do this unless you've got proper emergency money behind you, not just a couple of thousand dollars or $10,000 even. I'm talking enough to cover any foreseeable risk, not just financial risk, but lifestyle risk, such as losing your job, getting sick, family member needing money, you know, real proper emergency savings set up. And, of course, someone who's a high-growth investor, this is not for everyone. You've got to have a long-term time frame and, and know that it sits right. And as I sort of say to people, financial education is not necessarily about knowing what's right for you right now, but it's about knowing a lot of different things because a strategy like this may not be right for you right now, but it might be worth considering in, say, two or three years' time. Yeah. By knowing it, when that moment happens, you, you'll think, you know what, that strategy that Canada talked about debt recycling, I think we need to look into that right now. I think we're ready for it. <laughs> but if you just went, nah, too hard, I don't want to know about it, you're kind of 
holding yourself back and you'll never learn about the idea of letting your money work for you on an efficient basis. And it's got to be used for the right assets. Look, people do this all the time with, with residential investment properties. A lot of Australians are doing this without even them realising it. You know, they've used the equity within their home to go and buy an investment property and then another investment property. So I, I like to talk about shares because that's what I'm most passionate about. It's very, very common and it's, it's a, it is a very efficient strategy when done in the right way and understanding all the risks, not overextending yourself. And as I said, you don't have to borrow the full amount that the bank grants you. That <laughs> there until you are ready. And I say to people all the time and my clients, I don't let them sign any documents until I know with that hand on my heart that they understand what they're doing. Because if they don't understand what they're doing, they're not going to see the benefits of what they're doing. Yeah, understanding is so key, isn't it? Because then when you understand, you understand what is an acceptable risk for you. You you start to think through those differences. My husband tends to be a lot more conservative than me. He'd never invested before he met me. Therefore, sometimes I go a bit slower with things because it's just that's where we're at. Yeah. But it's different for everyone. Absolutely. And I have a podcast where I share with my followers about how my partner, Tom, and I do money in a modern day world because. My son is from a previous marriage. Tom and I have a daughter. We recently bought a house together and we came together when we met with different levels of financial literacy, different risk profiles and different goals. And also we're both self-employed people. So you've got that additional stress of you don't go to work, you don't get paid. So (laughs) um, I've shared with people how I handle the topic of money and how we manage our budget, how we manage our cash flow, you know, as a modern day family with different complications because there's no sort of how-to guide out there. No, it is a very different thing, isn't it? Some people really advocate having joint accounts no matter what. Some people like being very separate. It it depends, I think, but I I personally think the key thing is to have those discussions, those hard discussions in a relationship about money and the money values and where where you're situated with things. Absolutely. It's it's one that can come up with a lot of anxiety for people, um, fear. It's, It's very deeply personal. There's, I guess, subconscious beliefs and self-limiting beliefs being programmed as children, but they're all fixable. And it really comes down to financial education and financial empowerment. Go slow and steady, always come from a positive place. You know, listen to each other's money stories, educate, share, inspire. And, And that's what I've done with my partner, Tom and I. And we can bicker and argue about what's for dinner and why haven't you picked up your underwear and socks off the bathroom floor. Don't argue about money. We, it's, it's actually a really healthy, enjoyable subject to talk about and, and we are each other's cheerleader, teammate. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important to be a cheerleader, both for successes and also when things don't go to plan. Like it's really easy to say, well, it's your fault. You wanted to invest in these shares. Owning that there will always be risks in life and owning that together. Now, I know you're a licensed financial planner and we've seen some huge changes to the industry. Obviously, there was the Banking Royal Commission last year, which had some stories that weren't necessarily fantastic. Now, obviously, it's a Royal Commission, so they're going to talk often about the worst case stories. And you're obviously still in business. But I was wondering if you could talk a bit about some of the challenges that are currently facing the financial planning industry and and how the industry is responding to those things. There's a lot of new educational requirements. From a big picture perspective, it's a positive move. And it's not just for the Australian public's benefit, but also for financial planners as well, because 
It's going to make sure the industry shifts from being an industry to a profession. And it will help, I guess, expose and get rid of the people who should not be financial advisors and and, uh, their clients' best interests at heart and are being deceptive or misleading. So there's a lot of positive steps to come out of this. However, at the same time, you know, you look at the new requirements and the amount of additional new studies that every single financial planner has to do, and it is very it's, it's intense. I'm currently studying one course. I, um, I'm very lucky in that I was actually highly qualified and, and, and had most of all the educational requirements anyway. So I'm on in the small basket of, I guess, protected people. I'm, I'm sure there's no luck there. There's hard work and there's dedication. Well, talking of hard work, I'm doing one of the courses at the moment and it's recommended that you do 15 hours a week study. And there are lots of assignments and there's a big upcoming exam which I'm focusing on at the moment. There is no way I'm doing 15 hours a week. I'm doing at least 20. And it's dramatically impacted my stress levels and my work because I'm having to got clients calling me saying, oh, we need this, we need to come and talk to you about this. You know, and I've got these exams and these assignments which take priority at the moment. So it's not very considerate of people doing the right thing and also people running businesses and so I, I I'm a little bit disappointed in the way that it's been set up mm. and I guess the expectations of people actually dropping their workload their families their businesses to do these studies because that's not healthy that's not helping anyone particularly the clients and the other thing that's very unfair is the un- educational requirements my study buddy for example has a master's of finance <laughs> she has to do four different bridging subjects as well as the face year exam which I've got to do as well so it's it's almost gone too far in my opinion a bureaucracy gone wrong but it is at the end of the day we've got to do it just I'm not someone who sits around and complains I just kind of get on with it and that's always been my attitude however I do feel for a lot of people that are now deciding you know what I'm getting out of the industry I've I've got 30 years of experience I've loved what I've done but to go back to university and now do a degree or a master's because of a few bad eggs ruining it for everyone isn't necessary. It is incredibly disruptive to small business owners like myself and to people who are juggling family life and love what they do for work. So it, I guess the pendulum swings both ways. Yeah, 20 hours is a lot to find when you have such an active life like you do you have you know small children you're your wife you're a mother you've got businesses youtube podcast and 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 everything it's it's hard to find that extra time and i can't help but think you know you guys should be teaching this these courses as well you and your study buddies sounds like collectively you have so much knowledge to give it must be strange to be in the back seat to be learning it is, but it's it's very relevant to financial planners. So <laughs> it actually, if I was to talk to the general public, like my followers, about what I'm studying right now, I would bore them to tears. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's obviously what you love. Now, say there's someone who has never been to see a financial planner before, and I often get asked by people, what financial planner do you recommend? How do I know if someone's a good financial planner? What are the sort of questions that someone should be asking in this process? What sort of things should someone be looking for when they're choosing someone who's the right financial planner for them? First of all, you need to ask what what are their qualifications, making sure they're a licensed financial planner, that they're authorised to give advice for you around your superannuation, your investments, your insurances and so forth. 
The second thing I would suggest they ask them is about, well, do you follow your own advice? There are a lot of financial planners. Well, not a lot. That's not true. There are some financial planners who are great at giving advice but don't take it on themselves. (laughs) I'm walking the talk myself. So I know how my clients are feeling, you know, the excitement, the frustration, the tension. I'm, I'm riding those waves with my clients. So that's important to have someone that's got skin in the game as well. And the other things are making sure that they're accessible. Can you call them at any time? Can you email them? Do they have limited appointments? How often are they going to review your strategy? Because there's no point seeing a financial planner if they're going to set you up and never help you again. Mm. You need someone who's worked on a regular basis and not every month because that's unnecessary, but once a year that you should be checking in and, and, and talking to them and saying, all right, well, can we look at these new financial goals or what strategies do we need to change or alter or what new loopholes exist or you know, changes in the budget or legislation. You need someone who understands all of those things and is committed to working with you. I actually have a video on my YouTube channel. I think I share seven key things to look for when it comes to a good financial planner. And it's important and so much can happen in a year. Like imagine if it was you only reviewed every two or three years. I mean, when I met my husband, Neil, we were like engaged within three months of dating. Like, cause you know, when you know, right. And, and that can happen yes. with people. You, you meet someone Next thing, you've got a baby, you've moved in together. All sorts of things can happen really, really quickly. Exactly, exactly. And you want someone who's going to evolve with you, and and that's really important. And SAS Financial, my practice has been about 15 years old now, and a lot of my clients I actually looked at before I set SAS Financial up. So I've been looking after them for like 17, 18 years, which is incredible. And we've gone through so much, and it it is amazing all, all the ups and downs and adjustments and changes. It's very important to have someone that's going to hold your hand all the way through and is there for you no matter what. Well, fabulous. I'm sure that your customers really value you very much, which is why you still have them. One final question. Do you have a frugalista tip to share? Something that you do to save money? I just recently bought a Breville coffee machine and I make my own coffees at home. And I've been doing this for a long time. I just recently upgraded my machine, but it is the best. I, I can honestly say I've had three coffees in a cafe since purchasing this machine and I get to enjoy a coffee early in the morning, peace and quiet in the comfort of my own home in my fluffy dressing gown and it's savings that I absolutely love. And less takeaway cups too. Um, this is assuming oh, yeah. you had takeaway cups because not everyone does these days. Certainly from a sustainability point of view, that's really good too. Less transport, less petrol, less throwaway cups. I am big on supporting local small businesses. So the cafe around the corner from my house, I will support and go and grab stuff that I need, like a sandwich every now and again. But that's my frugal tip. I have coffee at home. $4 or $8 can quickly add up if you're doing that every day. Yeah, exactly. Do you know roughly how much it costs you when you make it yourself? I haven't done the maths. I haven't had a chance yet. I'm too busy <laughs> studying to do run the numbers. But both Tom and I, we're both saving money. So I'd be interested to fact work out how many coffees he's having at home as well because he leaves he leaves for work very early in the morning because he works in in the equine world. So I, I do need to run the numbers once my brain's <laughs> coming exam. I will let you know the savings. Thank you. And I put you on the spot with that, but I just figured that um, since you were in finance, it's probably crossed your mind at some point to work out the cost savings. It will. It will. Mm-hmm. Kana, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You've shared so much wisdom today. And how can my listeners find you if they haven't found you already, which I'm sure they probably have? Well, there is my podcast channel, Financial Foreplay. 
my YouTube channel, Sugar Mama TV, and my Instagram account, Sugar Mama TV, and I'm doing a lot of IGTV content, which is different to my YouTube one. Of course, you can always subscribe to my newsletter, the, the Sugar Hit. And when you do that, you actually get a free budget template. I have two books, The Thousand Dollar Project, which is a bestseller, and Mindful Money, which is my most recent book. It's just over a year old. That should be on bestseller numbers shortly if it's not already. That is the, the nuts and bolts of my financial brain on paper for everyone. And I put my heart and soul into that book. It's it's like a barefoot investor book, but a little bit more technical. A little bit more technical. Well, that sounds like you've really shared a lot of advice. And it's great, actually, because not many women who are in the finance space actually do talk about the technical. So it's really well worth it. Thank you very much once again. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And, of course, town has been by Neil Hadley. you got to accentuate the positive feeling. the negative latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess.